This is the Phelan and Myers 2 for 20 with the Willett, Phelan, Myers and Rots Wealth Management Group of Jannie Montgomery Scott. Jannie, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and the New York Stock Exchange, maintains a presence in Duluth with their office at 6340 Sugarloaf Parkway, Suite 130, Duluth, Georgia. Good afternoon and welcome to Phelan and Myers 2 for 20. This is Scott Phelan of the Phelan and Myers Group. I'm here with Greg Trevor today. Now, Greg lives in Athens, Georgia. He might be best known as a youth basketball coach. He <laughs> actually coached my son in, in, in youth basketball, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about something else. Now, during 9-11, you were the senior information officer for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, correct? That is correct. So you were there during 9-11. Which tower were you in? I was in the North Tower, also known as Tower One. By the way, before we continue, I do want to say I did coach your son, and Riley was an absolute pleasure to coach. Well, he was you. a great team leader, great player, and I'm so glad to hear in our off conversation that he's doing so well. But yeah. I, I I could spend 20 minutes talking about coaching youth basketball, <laughs> but I know that's not what we're here Well, yeah, his mom's done a good so, job with him, that's for sure. <laughs> no, he's... Great young man. Well, thank so, you. So, so you were in Tower I One, saying, right? So, Tower One. So, paint a picture for me of that day. Like, what time did you get into the office in the morning? If I remember that day, it was a clear sky in New York, probably typical September weather. You get in, yeah. what time? I mean, what was your routine? What did you do? And then how did that routine change, obviously? Actually, my routine had changed earlier in the day. Normally, I worked from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. But I actually got in early that day for a couple of reasons. I had switched a shift with another worker. So I was supposed to work eight to four. But the other thing that had happened was in the Port Authority, if you took a Port Authority vehicle out on an assignment and you were returning it after business hour, so after 6 p.m., you were allowed to take it home and bring it back the next day. The night before on September 10th, we had been meeting with the New York Times editorial board at Kennedy Airport in Queens. And so by the time we finished, it was too late for me to get back. So I just took the took the vehicle home. But because it was, you know, it was September, September, very popular month. Autumn in New York is absolutely true. A lot of people like to visit at that time, and the weather's beautiful then. I got up at 5.45 in the morning and just, got, you know, got dressed and got in the car to beat the traffic into the city. And you're absolutely correct. It was about as close to a perfectly beautiful day as you can imagine. I mean, it was clear. The sky was bright. You know, as I was driving and I was thinking, God, what a beautiful day this is. And in fact, right before the first plane hit, I happened to be on the phone with a colleague at Newark Airport. And as as I finished up, I looked out my window on the 68th floor of One World Trade and looked at the Statue of Liberty. And this absolutely happened because it was luminescent in, in that beautiful, bright sunlight. So I had just looked at the Statue of Liberty and I got into work at 7.15. Okay, okay, that day. And yep. I usually very early for me. But so I'd gotten a lot of work done, hour and a half, had had gone down to the cafeteria, had had a bagel, you know, answered all my emails from the day before because I was a, in Queens and was returning phone calls and I was all caught up. And then the next thing I know, I feel this explosion. And I first I thought it was a bomb had gone off. Now for context, in 1993, I was not at the Port Authority at that time. I was still living in North Carolina, but there was a truck bomb that exploded yep. uh, in the sub-basement. So that was my thought, was that somebody had snuck a bomb above our floor. But it was the first plane. It hit about 
20 to 25 floors above where I was. So so you um, were in Tower 1. Correct. And the first plane hit Tower 1? Tower, tower 1. Okay. Okay. So, And what time did the plane hit? It was, what, 8.30? a.m. 8.46. And what happened was it hit from the north. The way the terrorists did it was they had one plane fly in from the north, hit Tower 1, and then the next plane, which struck on, at 9.02 a.m., came from the south. Okay. Because we were told later through the intelligence reports that their goal, terrorist goal, was to knock both towers over mm-hmm. and try to trap half a million people in lower Manhattan. So so you're uh, on the 6th day floor and hit, what you said, 25 floors up, so the 93rd floor. About 92 tower. to 96, I think, okay. was if you actually look at the way the plane was angled when it came in. But it was, yeah, about about 25 floors up. Okay. So it came in from the north, Yep. knocked me to the floor. Okay. The, the impact. The way I've described it is it felt like someone had grabbed a car antenna, pulled it down, and it swayed back and forth. The, the North Tower swayed multiple times in both directions. I looked out the window. I saw flame. I saw glass. I saw paper fly by my window. And then after that, the only thing I could hear were hundreds of car alarms going off on the street because there was no other sound. Yeah. And then the phone started ringing, and I worked for the media relations office, so it was it was me, members of the media who uh, wanted to know what had happened. And, in fact, we weren't sure until I got a call from a local station, TV station that said, can you confirm that a plane hit your building? And I said, well, what's your source of information? He said about 200 people on their cell phones, which yep. is how we figured out that we were actually hit by a plane. Yep. So I went and talked to my supervisor, who was already in as well. We were There were very few people in by then. It was still before nine, and we decided very quickly we needed to evacuate. Now, I should point out the Port Authority took this stuff very seriously, and we did evacuation drills twice a year. So, had they so, advised you? Had the Port Authority advised you? Hey, if something happens, here's what you do: you immediately go to the stairwell. Had you had any briefing on that type of thing? We had done evacuation drills to the stairwell. Now. There were actually multiple levels of what we could do under those circumstances. There was a command center on the 64th floor, four floors below us. We quickly decided that was not a good idea because our offices were filling up with smoke and we figured this was not going to, you know, this was not going to be a healthy and safe environment. The original plan was to go to Three World Trade, which was the Marriott Hotel, which is where the Port Authority evacuated to after the 93 bombing. And that was on the World Trade Center complex, but not in either of the towers. What we ended up eventually doing was evacuating to Jersey City because by the time we did eventually get down an hour later, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we were down, by the time we got down, Tower 2 was already gone. So mm-hmm. there wasn't much choice but to get off the World Trade Center complex. So we decided we were gonna, going to uh, get into the stairwell. We gathered, at, you know, the procedure we counted for everybody who was on the floor at that time. We made sure everybody knew what we were doing. You know, we knew we were going to have to go back to work. So, you know, because the Port Authority at that time owned and operated the Trade Center. So I pulled out my gym bag, threw some pads in, pens, all kinds of, you know, writing equipment, and we headed over. Uh, I will say one, I was there, so I'll tell you it was humorous, and we can joke about it now, but when we were leaving there were actually two phone calls holding from members of the media. And I turned to one of my colleagues. I said, you get rid of one, I'll get rid of the other, and we'll get the hell out of here. So I pick up the phone, and I say, Greg Trevor here. And the, the um, gentleman says, hey, I'm with NBC National News. If you could hang on for five minutes, we want to do a live interview. And I said, no, we're evacuating. 
And he said, well, this will only take a minute. And I said, no, we're leaving right now. And then he kind of sputtered and said, but, but, but this is NBC national news. And I'm thinking, oh, if it was a local affiliate, I'd risk, I wouldn't risk my life, but I would for the national news. And I just said, I'm sorry and hung up the phone. Right. So then we go into the stairwell and the evacuation took about a floor a minute because there were literally thousands of people in the stairwell. And, you know, again, we had drilled on this. Everyone's going down two by two. You know, we would move over and go single file if they were bringing someone down who was injured or rescue workers were running up the stairs. And it took us about an hour to get down from 68 down to the fifth floor, which is where I was when the next major development occurred. And I was still, you know, confident. We knew what to do. We knew how to get out. And then um, I felt this rumbling and I looked up and all of this dust fell into my face and I was thrown from one side of the stairwell to the other. My back cracked against the um, banister and then the lights died. And then all of a sudden this water started rushing down the stairs. We didn't know it then, but tower two had just collapsed. So what happened was that collapse of tower two severed many of the uh, pipes and electrical infrastructure that connected the two towers and the water was actually coming from these huge water tanks that were uh, at the top of the towers that's how we got water pressure during the day was they filled these tanks at night and then the water would you know run down so the water had nowhere to go so it just started running down the stairs the way i described it is it felt like walking through this dark dirty river at night in the middle of a forest fire yeah and now we can't see there's no light so we were told put your hand on the right shoulder of the person in front of you and then we kept going. And then we were told, we heard someone yell, oh, blank. Yeah. The door's locked. What he meant was that the force of the collapse of Tower 2 had blocked the exit from the stairwell where we were. Now, at that time, the procedure was you were supposed to go to another stairwell. Problem was, because there were three stairwells in each tower, the problem was the stairwell, by the time we were down there at the fifth floor, there were no corridors to connect the stairwells. It was all mechanical rooms. So what we had to do was then turn around and start heading back up so we could get to a floor where we could cross. So you, you imagine the situation. It's dark. It's dirty. It's smoky. Now we're going against the current of the river. We're walking up. People behind us are walking down. People are bumping into each other in the dark. Yeah. It started getting a little frightening. Right. And that was the first point I thought, maybe I won't make it. So uh, I was really worried. So what I did was I, uh, I said a little prayer. I, said, I just said, Lord, please let me see my family again. That's all I cared about. And then I closed my eyes and made mental images of my wife and my two sons and thought to myself, their faces will keep me calm. And if I die, they will be the last thing on my mind. It was really the first time I thought we might not make it. Right. But then we were very lucky. Um, there was a gentleman named David Lim, who is still my friend to this day and was a hero of 9-11. David was a Port Authority canine officer his dog cirrus was killed the only the only canine to be killed on 9 11 and david had left cirrus in the in the kennel and never never saw him again because of the force of the tower collapsing david was the person who had the presence of mind that once the rescue workers were able to pull that door open he was the one who started shouting down is good down is good yeah and when i heard that I shouted, down is good, over my shoulder, and then you could hear it like an echo up the stairwell. And that's how we were all able to figure out that we needed to get out by going down. Okay. And then we went down. 
went down to the mezzanine where all the um, stores were, all the shops, because there was kind of a mini shopping mall at the bottom of the Trade Center. And then for anyone who's seen the documentary that the French filmmakers made about 9-11, they shot a lot of footage of this passageway with these two-story glass windows. That's how we walked out. Now, by then, it was so full of dust. The way I've described it is it felt like we were walking through a dark, dirty snow globe that had just been shaken. I mean, yeah. it was dust everywhere. And they had us walk single file out the door. This is the first time we were outside. We were next to Six World Trade, which was the U.S. Custom House. It was a federal building. And the, the rescue workers told us to stay underneath the awning. Somebody would look out and then say, okay, you can go. We didn't know what, why they did that. We found out later it was because people were jumping. Yeah. So, you know, he would say go. And so when we went, we would go. We, we, so we walked around the perimeter of the Trade Center complex and went down what is now known as the Survivor Staircase, which was the last piece of the World Trade Center that survived above ground the, uh, the impact of, of the attacks. And we went down there and then started heading north. And my supervisor was with me, and she said, where should we go? And I said, Holland Tunnel. Holland Tunnel is a Port Authority facility. We knew there would be Port Authority police there. And so we knew that if we, we got there, they could get us off Manhattan Island and get us over to Jersey City, where we could set up our emergency center. So now we're walking uptown. I mean, we're covered in dust, covered in smoke. We've got TV crews trying to interview us. We're saying, no, thank you. People are handing us bottles of water. You know, everyone was trying to help one another. And then after maybe a block and a half, I feel this rumbling behind me. And I look up and I see an NYPD officer who yells, run for your lives. This is when Tower One was collapsing. Yeah. We didn't know what was going on. All we knew is that he told us to run. We're going to run. Now, did so you know started... Tower Two had already gone down? Actually, no. At that point, I had no idea what had happened to Tower Two. Okay. There was so much smoke flowing out of Tower One that you couldn't see anything. I did not realize at that point that Tower Two had gone down. Okay. So we didn't know. All we knew was that we had to get out of there. And we we felt the rumbling and we heard run for your lives. We ran uptown toward the Holland Tunnel. You could feel the debris, the smoke, the dust, and the heat from the collapsing tower behind you when you were running. And I ran several blocks till we got to within about a block of the Holland. And then I turned around, I saw a coworker of mine, a gentleman named John Toth, who worked in our aviation department. John, I did a lot of work with the airports. And so John and I had worked together on several projects. And he was limping, his knee was bloody. And I said, John, are you okay? And he said, they're gone, Greg. And I thought he meant one of his coworkers had died. I said, who's gone? He goes, no, not who, who, the towers are gone. And then I looked back and saw the only way I can describe it is this hole in the sky. Yeah. You know, my office was, had been 700 feet in the air and now there's nothing left. And that was very unnerving, but we had a mission. We had to go do our jobs. We had to go and get set up and start to communicate, frankly, with the world about what had happened and why. So we all piled into the back of a Port Authority police car. They took us through the Holland Tunnel. And the Port Authority Police Headquarters are actually in Jersey City across the Hudson River. So we set up there our emergency communications office. And we were there in different locations, but we were in Jersey City for a couple of months. And just answering questions from media all over the world, what had happened, why, how many people had been killed, what the impact was, 
airports being closed, when are the tunnels going to reopen, that kind of thing, all, all sorts of questions that we needed as a very small group. There were only about six or seven of us dealing with worldwide interest and inquiries from the media about what had happened and why. Yeah. So that's in a nutshell what happened that day. And I'm, I'm compressing what is about 90 minutes of what we went through because we got out of Tower 1 11 minutes before it collapsed. And Tower 1 collapsed 102 minutes after it uh, was hit. And so we, it was, I think it was approximately 91 minutes between the time it hit and we actually got out of the, out of the towers. You know, we were very fortunate. Many of us still stay in touch with one another. And, you know, we are all very, very lucky. We're, we're 3,000 people, nearly 3,000 people lost their lives, but we were among 25,000 people who were successfully evacuated from the towers. I mean, Which it was amazing. a day of great tragedy, yeah. but it was also a day of incredible humanity and people looking out for each other. Scott, this is a point I like to make, and if you don't mind, I'm going to make it sure. now because I, I make this when I talk to people, particularly down in Georgia. Most people have not met a World Trade Center survivor in this part of the country. There is a misconception, and I'm, I'm not faulting anyone for it, just a misconception among a lot of people, that if you were in the Trade Center that day, you died. And there were literally 25,000 people who were, who were rescued, and they were rescued because of people like David Lim, who after he got us out was trapped for five hours. It's people like Kathy Mazza, who was probably the person I knew the best, who was killed that day. Kathy was a former operating room nurse who became the head of our police training academy. And she instituted the first portable heart defibrillator program at transportation facilities in the New York metropolitan area while at the Port Authority. Kathy was an amazing person. And these people help people like me get out. Yeah. And I always say that if you think everybody who was there died, then what that means is those rescue workers died in vain. Yeah. That's a very painful thing. And that's why I, I want to make sure people understand that, that there were people like me are here today because of the heroism of those people. And I, I pray for them every day. I pray for their families and anything I can do to help keep that memory alive, I'm going to do. Right. So 9-11 happened. You said for the next couple months, you were talking to press, you know, mm -hmm. being, being a spokesman. So when things slow down and, and you have time to reflect on what happened, I mean, mm -hmm. how do you wrap your head around something like that? How does it change you? Oh, it changes you considerably. I've been in therapy, very honest and upfront about that. I think people like me who are, are part of the mental health system should talk about it and be open about it so that it's not in the shadows. Spent a lot of time coping with the enormity of it, the survivor guilt, which still affects me to this day. But the other thing I will say that it has helped me to do is to really have an appreciation of the time I have remaining on this planet. You know, the, in soccer, the term is you have extra time, Yeah. you know, and to me, the last almost 22 years now has been extra time on this planet. And to me, I feel an obligation to make the most of that time to help other people, to serve the community. You know, as you know, we talked at the very beginning about coaching. My, my children are grown. I don't have any kids in the system here, but I love to coach. I love to develop young people. I love to watch them become adults, both young men and young women. And so being able to do that and being able to 
have an impact on their lives. One of the former players on the team, he was actually on the team with Riley. His parents gave me a little thing to hang on my wall that says a good coach changes a game, a great coach changes a life. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's what I did, but I felt like, you know, if if people, if young people are feeling like that they're developing an appreciation for the game or for teamwork or people who are going to give back. I have former players of mine who now coach, you know, that kind of thing. That's, you know, that's what I'm trying to do with this time on the planet. And again, to just make the most of it and working in a place like the university of Georgia, where I work now, I'm the associate vice president and the university spokesperson is a great group of people. I love working there. And I've been working in public higher education now for 19 years. And to me, that is such an important area to talk about and to promote because in a typical non-COVID year, 15 million young men and women in this country are enrolled in a college or university, public college or university. It's 19 million total, but 15 million of them are at public colleges and universities. And when you think about what a powerful engine that is of economic opportunity and social mobility, and all the young people who are getting, having the ability to chart their own destiny because of that. To me, that's such an important thing to to promote and to help people understand why it's so vital in a in a nation like ours. So you've been at UGA for how long now? Almost seven years. Okay, uh, October of 2016. Okay, I worked at Rutgers University for 12 and a half years, and I, at my 20th anniversary will actually my 20th anniversary in higher ed will be in March. But my seventh anniversary at UGA will be in October. Okay. So do you consider yourself a Southerner now? Well, I went to college at the University of Virginia. And there's a big debate down here whether that counts as the South. <laughs> that doesn't count. That doesn't okay, count. Okay, fine. I did work for eight years in North Carolina. Does that, that count? counts? That counts. Okay. That counts. Yes, All right. Yes. So I, I worked for eight years in North Carolina. I got married in Raleigh. My wife, who's also a Yankee, was from South Carolina. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think we have some bona fides. I don't claim to be a Southerner. Listen, you're too I, good of a guy not to be a Southerner. So we'll, we'll bring well, you in. You're, you're on the team. You're on the team. You made thank it. You, Scott. you made the team. I appreciate, I appreciate it. I will tell you this. We love living in Athens. It's a great it's town. A, it's a great town. It's got so many things going for it. Beautiful neighborhoods. The universities great place to work. It's a great place to go to school. You know, we're doing so many exciting things there. We love living here. Uh, we love the people we've met, you know, and working with folks like yourself and your son and your family and all the families that we've been involved with in ter- in so many different ways. It's just, it's just been a great place to live. We feel very, very blessed. Yeah. And that's the one thing I'll say at, at the end here, since I know we're running out of time, is I have kind of a saying that I like to use now to help explain to people kind of how I feel about life. And it is every day is a gift. Every breath is a blessing. Mm -hmm. And I try to feel grateful for everything that we have that we can um, enjoy, even the challenges that we face because they make us stronger. And on my board at work, I have every day is a gift. What will you do with your gift today? And to me, that's, that's how I want to spend the rest of my days. Yeah. Well, I couldn't say any better. That's the way to end it right there. Thank you so much. We're glad you're in the community, very much so. Oh, I'm glad too. And everybody you see in Oconee County, just tell them Coach Greg says hi. (laughs) And I'll try to get to as many of them as I can as soon as possible. (laughs) Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, my friend. Great talking to you. You too.
The information provided here is taken from sources which we believe to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of such information is not guaranteed by us. This is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of individual investors. Employees of Janney Montgomery Scott LLC or its affiliates may at times release written or oral commentary, technical analysis, or trading strategies that differ from the opinions expressed here. Investing may involve market risk, including possible loss of principal. Janney Montgomery Scott LLC, its affiliates, and its employees are not in the business of providing tax, regulatory, accounting, or legal advice. Any tax-related statements are not intended for and cannot be used or relied upon by any such taxpayer for the purpose of avoiding tax penalties. Any such taxpayer should seek advice based on the taxpayer's particular circumstances from an independent tax advisor. For more information about Janney, please see Janney's Relationship Summary Form CRS on www.janney.com backslash CRS, which details all material facts about the scope and terms of our relationship with you and any potential conflicts of interest.